Welcome to Season 1, Episode 15 of Migrations. This is your host, Nisha Modi. We have one more episode left in this season. Wow. I cannot believe that the season's almost done. It has definitely been a journey. I can hear the difference between these episodes as I listen back, and while I might have used to see this negatively, I now view it as progress because all creation is process-oriented, not product-oriented. So I appreciate your continued support by subscribing to Migrations, downloading episodes, rating and reviewing, and supporting me financially on Patreon. If you haven't done so already, can you do me a favor? Can you just take a moment right now to go to your phone and rate the podcast? And if you have Apple Podcasts, can you write me a review? It will only take a couple minutes, and it really helps to get this podcast distributed to the public. It is so, so, so important to center Asian voices, and I need your help to do it. So can you take a second just before we begin to do that? Thank you. Today, I'm interviewing Black Palms. He was born and raised in Hawaii and identifies as Hapa. Black Palms is a production manager and a street artist based in L.A. You may have seen his iconic egg with the red yolk on various sidewalks and buildings around L.A., Atlanta, New York, and Hawaii. You can find him on Instagram at BLK underscore PLMS. Just for context, we are recording on June 9th. And I'm mentioning that not only because of COVID, but also because of the recent murder of George Floyd by the police, which has caused a national uprising against police brutality and awakening about racism across the country. Thank you so much for being here, Black Palms. How are you? I feel great. Um, thank you so much for uh, having me. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of tension lately, I feel like, between the pandemic and the unrest around racism that has always been there, but it has been ignited a little more recently. How are you feeling about all that? You know, it's certainly not for me to complain or anything like that. But for myself and some of my friends, I noticed that, um, you know, a lot of us have been going through a lot of stress lately, like with those situations that you mentioned. And it just might be good to take a moment just to check yourself and make sure you're doing okay and just keep in touch with your friends and make sure they're doing okay and see if we can all get through this together. And I'm optimistic with all these ideas for hopeful solutions to the myriad of issues that have come up or at least come to the fore in this current unrest. And I just hope and pray that we're all able to find some solution to these issues. As I mentioned, this was recorded over three months ago when people you never even heard talk about racism or white privilege were chanting hashtag Black Lives Matter on social media posts. Some even echoed defund the police, which has certainly simmered since the beginning of July. I talked to Black Palms a little bit more about this. Right. And I think it's great that at least the conversation has moved. You know, we had never discussed defunding the police prior, and now it's a campaign issue. So while it's all a lot of talk right now, hopefully um, things will start happening. Yes. Ultimately, actions speak louder than words, right? Black Palms and I talked more about his background. He identifies as Hapa, and I asked him what that meant. Sure. I grew up in Hawaii. Hapa is a Hawaiian word that means half. It's often used in terms of being Hapa Haole. Haole is a Hawaiian word for, um, it's used um, describing Caucasian. Originally, it meant to refer to foreigners. Actually, in truth, Haole means 
those of no breath. It relates to the ancient Hawaiian greeting where people would put their heads together and share breath. And somehow when the Haoles came to Hawaii, they didn't greet the same way. And they were thus called the folks with no breath. But now hapa means half. There's a lot of people who are of mixed race in Hawaii. It can mean half Japanese, half Haole, or mixing of those, or Chinese, Hawaiian, Portuguese, Hmong, Samoan, Fijian, um, you know, it could mean anything. And in a way, in a big way, it's become its own culture. There are so many Hapa people out there that it's become its own identity in a good way. You know, growing up in Hawaii as uh, half Japanese and half Haole, uh, French, German, Scottish, looking around my class, everybody, there was just a bunch of brown kids and we all kind of looked the same where it was all a mix of ethnicities. And, you know, I felt perfectly normal and natural in that situation. You know, I hear a lot of stories also on your podcast about folks who felt isolated as the only Asian face in their community. And it's hard for me to imagine that growing up in Hawaii, since Asians are everywhere and in all shapes and sizes. It was unique to hear about a person of color feeling represented in the place they grew up in the United States. I asked Black Palms a little bit more about his migration story. My grandfather, Saburo Kohatsu, came from the village of Kohatsu in uh, Okinawa and came to America to marry my grandmother, who had been second-generation Japanese born on Maui, Dorothy Kohatsu, after she was married. And they worked through various jobs, including having a banana plantation, having a general store. My mom tells me stories about as a 13-year-old little girl driving across the Pali, across the island, driving the family farm truck to Sacred Heart Academy. And she could barely see over the hood. And she got in big trouble for driving to school, you know, when she didn't even have a driver's license. So, you know, I think from the beginning, my family's been entrepreneurial, which I feel like is definitely a trait in our immigrant experience in Hawaii. I've got three other Hapa friends who all of our families are all entrepreneurs in one way or another. And we're all, to a greater or lesser degree, involved in the arts. So it's kind of a funny sort of progression uh, in that way. Then my Japanese mom met my father, who's French, German, Scottish from Washington State. They met in Waikiki. My dad was running a bar, which is hard to believe because he's a, a very shy guy. But apparently they came across a bar in Waikiki and the owner of the bar said, hey, you guys can run this bar. You can take a percentage of the sales and you can live here. You can crash here. But, you know, you've got to keep it full. You've got to entertain the folks and whatever. So apparently, which is beyond my imagination, they were telling jokes and singing songs and like having some sort of floor show with all these guys that he had traveled from uh, Washington State to Hawaii with. And that's where they, uh, my mom and dad met. They got married. Um, they had me, um, the Hapa kid. You know, the Japanese grandparents weren't necessarily happy about their Japanese daughter marrying this Haole guy. For better or worse, the marriage lasted about seven years. They divorced, and um, I found myself growing up in front of the TV. When I was participating in this internship program that Magnum PI offered, we were filming a um, scene at Kaiser Hospital in Waikiki. Kaiser Hospital was scheduled to be imploded. They were going to destroy the building, and they concocted this story where Magnum was trapped in the elevator of the building, and there was this 
incredibly, you know, tense moment of three, two, one, no, stop the implosion. Oh my gosh, we're going to save him. But anyway, I saw my actual birthplace destroyed in front of my eyes for the sake of a television show. And uh, my career was launched. <laughs> yeah, that's a real uh, metaphor for like birth and death or I don't know, rebirth. <laughs> Certainly transformation. Yes. We talked a little bit more about the jobs that Black Palms had as a production manager, the internship that got him in touch with Magnum PI, and how he became a street artist. When I was in um, college, I was in bands, and if we wanted to play a gig, we would have to organize it. So, you know, we'd get the music together, rehearse it, get some of our friends' bands together, rent a hall, get the flyers, organize the bands, put a program together, put somebody at the door, collect the money, get the sound system, play your set then distribute the money, et cetera. And I feel like that experience doing that more than anything else in school or any other sort of preparation afterward really taught me how to produce, how to take something and make it happen. When I was in uh, college, Magnum PI was shooting and they had a um, program at the university where they would choose folks to um, intern on their set and then also um fly them over to take what's called the Director's Guild and Producer's Guild Assistant Director Training Program Test, which was a program that was designed to help minority folks and um, women who didn't have connections in the industry to help them break in at that point. And to a great degree now, it's an industry that's, um, there's a lot of nepotism in the industry. And so that helped me tremendously to um, move forward in my um career, um, I moved to Los Angeles and started that off. You know, ever since I was a little kid, I knew I wanted to work in TV. So it was uh, certainly a dream come true. And I'm extremely happy doing it to this day. Yeah. So you started in a directing program, but now you do more production. What caused that? It's actually an assistant directing program. It's run by the Directors Guild, but it's a training program. When I was in college, I was, um, not to change the subject, but I was definitely aiming toward a career in directing. And then just as I was in my senior year, I was asked to help out a grad student with her thesis project, which was a buto dance treatment of a Japanese no-theater play. And I was exposed to this form, buto dancing, which is absolutely nonverbal. It's preverbal. It's not an abstract form, but rather a form that when you see it, you could tell there's something going on, but you can't necessarily explain it in words. And my love for the narrative quickly dissolved, and um, I was immediately enamored with this new form, and thus was not as interested in telling stories as I had been during college. So it was good that I very excited to um, work in production, not necessarily telling the story from the director's seat, but supporting that role. And I um, continued working with um, several companies in the Bhutto culture in New York and uh, more so in Los Angeles. Yeah, I really like the description that you gave that it's pre-verbal. And I was trying to think like, what else can we describe in that way? And I don't really know. Do you have any other analogy for, for what that might look like? I feel like when you see dance, but especially Bhutto done well, you get a feeling as if the dancer, more than just dancing, is experiencing something, that they are involved in the dance, not just performing steps. And I think it would be 
akin to perhaps something like just seeing some sort of natural phenomenon of a flock of birds flying by or a volcano or something that you it, it affects you and your atavistic self is touched in a way that predates the human's verbal communication. You know, it affects us to our core, even prior to civilization and language, you know, that's been my experience. Yeah, I think that's a really beautiful way of putting it in terms of experiencing. And this kind of also was really big for you because it altered your direction in TV to work more on the production side. Right. And I love production. It's like a giant crossword puzzle that you got to figure out every day. And it's exciting. It can be dreary. It can be um, it can be very tough. There's extremely long hours. You work under crazy conditions of the heat of summer and freezing cold and we're out all night. And, you know, every time you see a, a night scene on in a movie or in television, it means that there was a crew that was out there all night, you know, working dusk till dawn. But, you know, that somebody said that um, people in the film industry are the children of Navy SEALs and circus clowns. And I think that kind of sums up where we're kind of like a circus and we do crazy things. But also, you know, when it comes down to getting something done, it can be very inspirational working with the professionals in the film industry and just seeing that, you know, I hate to use the word awesome, but just awesome things that can be done as a team when everybody pitches in and has a plan and is able to realize it to the director's vision. It's very rewarding, very exciting, um, especially when we're blowing things up and crashing cars and stuff like that. It's it's the best. Yeah, <laughs> that does sound like fun. <laughs> as long as it's safe, obviously. <laughs> You know, I'm going to go back to the Buto really quick. Um, I remember you mentioning to me earlier that it's called the Dance of Darkness. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. So, um, Ankokubuto, which is its original complete name, it means the Dance of Darkness in Japanese. It almost seems like legend at this point, but it is said to have been influenced by the works of Yukio Mishima um, and perhaps influenced by the Hibakusha, the atomic bomb, if you like. And the uh, originators, Tatsumi Hichikata and Kazuo Ono, started it, I believe, in Tokyo. It's a very Japanese dance. It's a very, in the way that ballet is uplifting, Buto is often very rooted in the ground. It's a perhaps a farmer's dance coming from, you know, our stout legs and closeness to the ground. But, you know, in the way that when you say the word jazz, it can mean so many different things and types and forms of music, Buto may have started with a darker sense to it, especially some of the more shocking works of Hichikata. But since then, it's grown, it's spread across the globe, and it's branched off into various family branches and gone through the works of many, many brilliant choreographers and realized by many brilliant dancers. And so a lot of the people involved now don't even like to use the term buto. It's perhaps become a little bit of a cliche. It's a convenient term to use to clarify, but when you get down to the um, the details of it, at this point, I think the good dance is just dance. I asked Black Palms to talk about how his dancing art evolved into street art, especially because the street art revolves around one of my favorite foods, eggs. So I had this idea about painting eggs, like a fried egg with a red yolk. Originally, it was an idea to paint on furniture as if the egg were sort of sliding off the edge of a table and a um, Halloween makeup idea. 
And then I was in Atlanta and I thought, well, why don't I put these on the sidewalk? And I was living near the Crog Street Tunnel, which is a famous graffiti spot. This uh, it was about a block long tunnel near Cabbage Town. And it's covered top to bottom, front to back with paint. It changes on the daily and it's amazing. It's a really living conversation in art. It was very inspiring. And um, so I thought, well, if I'm going to do this street art thing, now's the time. And um, I went out and put some um, eggs, which I think are actually still there, like two and a half years later in certain spots. Why is it a red yolk? It's, it's really difficult to say. I think it may speak to some sort of latent Japanese nationalism. It is my high school colors, Go Kalani. And then I think also um, I've heard that when you eat fertilized yolks, they have a reddish tinge. But in truth, it's some sort of unconscious decision that I can't necessarily nail down. And it just sort of happened. Yeah, it's definitely provocative. So whatever the reason, it has people thinking, which I think is the best part about it. Yeah, you know, um, I, I started off just putting it on the sidewalk. And for me, it's just a hopefully cheer people up. And it's a very innocent, iconic image, hopefully that makes people smile. You know, people tell me, oh, I found, I saw your egg here. I saw your egg there. Sometimes I come out of a restaurant and I look to see where I think an egg should be. And there it is. I've been lucky enough to, like you said, they're in New York, Atlanta, Honolulu, San Francisco, Tucson, Phoenix, well, more places to come. They're also a little bit of a Rorschach test in that people project their own ideas onto them um, as it's such a blank image. You know, most people enjoy it and like it and say it cheers them up. But I have been accused of being part of a white supremacist government conspiracy. I often try to put them in front of, you know, the espresso bars or whatever the new restaurant is, just because I thought like those people might appreciate it. And I try not to put it in front of older establishments just because I don't want to offend those people. But then some said, oh, it's I've heard that it's a way of marking white owned businesses. And if that's true, I can't imagine, you know, that the government would do that. And then this is on some social media. And the next post was, let's find this guy and kill him. We're going to make him pay for this and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it's just crazy looking at an egg and, you know, suddenly figuring that all out. Yeah. Um, There's a hit on you or something like that. We'll see. And, you know, like, I'm happy that a lot of them are still up. Sometimes, you know, people come along and buff just graffiti in general. And I feel like maybe it's just my paranoia, but I've seen people like step over somebody else's graffiti to erase mine. And it I don't know why the egg affects people like that. But I guess, you know, like I said, it's a Rorschach test and it's whatever you're feeling is projected on the egg. So right. Wow. Well, I'm glad that you're safe and no one found you. <laughs> so you put them on sidewalks, but you also put them uh, more recently on buildings as well, right? Yeah. Um, I've got an obsessive mind and it's always sort of trying to figure out a new way to deliver the egg image. I um, started off just on the sidewalk and then putting it in the vicinity of other street art and taking photos of it and putting it up on Instagram and then um, trying to work out my own imagery. And it's sort of morphed into a kind of a um, profile of a fried egg. It looks kind of like a flying saucer sometimes. I've done some big ones like eggs that are 40 feet wide 
Um, I've done a few murals, the latest one near the Fairfax district, and bringing in rainbow imagery, cloud imagery, just things that are hopefully innocent and spread an image of love and happiness to folks that, you know, in coming from Hawaii in my work and in my art, I just try to bring the aloha spirit to, you know, whatever I'm doing. And I I think people respond to that. And that's sort of what drives me. Yeah. So when um, you look for spots, especially when you're putting something like maybe on the side of a building or something, how do you decide that? Like, what's the mechanics of it? There are several criteria that um, are involved in deciding the lifespan of a um, piece of street art. You know, of course, location is what it's all about, um, whether you want a spot that's seen by a lot of eyes, but that you want a spot that's not going to get buffed, like not going to get covered up immediately, because, you know, there's a lot of work that goes into it, and there's a certain amount of risk that's involved. So you want to pick a spot that's a little bit out of the way, but still got traffic going by it, whether that's going to be automobile traffic or foot traffic. And something that, you know, I try not to, I don't do churches, I don't do schools, I try not to do private property. And, you know, you try to put it up where it's not going to offend somebody and hopefully find a spot that's got some other graffiti around so that it doesn't look like it's going to get erased immediately. And, you know, I just, I, I look at the guys who have been around and the bigger artists in Los Angeles and in other cities, and they have that knack of just picking the best spots that just live for. You know, and it's it's really it's a separate skill. It's its own you know analysis and talent to figure out that spot. Yeah, I can see that that's the a hidden art in it that a lot of people may not realize. I never even thought about that either. And a lot of times when I'm painting on the street, it's painting in the midst of terror and paranoia. Like I'm looking over my shoulder, and you know, you got to get in, you got to get out. I try to keep calm, but you know, at any moment, somebody might be pulling up and have some disagreement with what I'm doing. Has it ever happened to you where someone pulled up and confronted you? Yeah, I was um, doing a, a thing on the sign on the 110 freeway downtown. And unfortunately, the spot that I wanted to get on the freeway was covered by a security guard. So I had to walk like two blocks on the freeway in the middle of the night on the shoulder, which is crazy. I don't recommend you do this at home, kids. I'm just about getting to the spot and whoop, whoop, the red and blue lights Flash, guys pull over. They say, hey, are you doing some tagging? I said, nope. Um, you got any spray cans in your backpack? And I said, no, because I use brushes. And they said, well, what are you doing on the freeway? Oh, I'm walking home from it. Why is there paint all over you? And I said, well, I just came from an art thing downtown. And they said, well, you can't walk on the freeway. So for your own safety, we're going to take you off the freeway. But to do that, we're going to handcuff you. We're not arresting you. But we're going to handcuff you and put you in the car and we're going to take you off the freeway. So I got a free ride from uh, the CHP off the freeway. Um, They valeted me right back to my car and I came back the next night and uh, finished the job. (laughs) Most importantly. Yeah. Wow. You know, it's also right now, you know, I think about, well, what if you were black? You know what I mean? What would have happened in that case? I mean, maybe it would have been fine. I have no idea. But, you know, it is one of those things now that it's hard to not think about that, you know, based on um, what's happening in the country. And I think, you know, in the graffiti game, since my image is not a tag necessarily, it's more of an innocent, perhaps artistic image. Um, A friend of mine who um, came up in the graffiti world said that, you know, maybe I would get a little leeway from a judge, but 
you know, certainly, you know, if I was Latino or if I was African-American, spray cans, it would be a completely other situation. We talked more about contextualizing street art within society. The exciting thing about the street art world is just the, the constant conversation between the artist, between the city itself. And, you know, it's an incredible medium to immediately respond to whatever's going on in society and express visually what hopefully a lot of people are feeling or what an artist might try to lead them toward feeling. And, you know, there's a lot of, um, there's competition, there's backstabbing, there's tagging, there's sad. A lot of people will spray over an artist's work. It's been happening a lot, you know, during the coronavirus, a lot of people have put up works that, you know, hopefully are inspirational or educational toward helping us get through this virus thing. And, you know, with Garcetti saying that they specifically will not be um, spending much time um, enforcing graffiti laws, there's been a lot of other painting going on. And unfortunately, sometimes on some of this street artwork, differentiating graffiti from street art, there's a little tension between the worlds, which, you know, is interesting. It's um, kind of keeps it exciting. Not always great. Hopefully, uh, you know, we can all do the work to spread the love, spread the good message and work together. Yeah. um, In terms of the current moment, I mean, I remember like right after Kobe died, there were so many murals of him and Gianna, his daughter, like immediately. And I was like, wow, that was fast. But, you know, that you said this, I, I realized that, yeah, it's just like you said, it's this response to the whatever's happening. And now that seems so long ago, you know. Yeah, and now they're starting to put Black Lives Matter murals over Kobe murals, and people are saying, you know, where's the Kobe mural? But, you know, they call it temporary art, so it just reflects reflects the day. Wow, I had no idea about that. That's really interesting. So how has your art process changed since you started? When did you start, a few years ago? or? Yeah, uh, two and a half years ago. You know, like I said, I started on the sidewalk. I did flyers. Um, I've been doing some stickers. I did some T-shirts. I had a couple of pop-ups where I sold some paintings as well. But, you know, I'm new at the game. I'm trying to see what works. I've been working in paste-ups or where I can do more focused work in my home on a poster and then take it to the spot. And all I need to do is paste it up and hopefully it stays up a little bit, which has its um, pluses and minuses. Um, you know, the city doesn't like it because it's more of a pain to remove. And, um, you know, it allows you to do more detail at home and out of the public eye and then put it up very quickly and get out. But then when that thing gets covered up in 12 hours, it's a bit more heartbreaking. But it's, um, you know, I do everything by hand. And I'm just learning. And, you know, to me, it's like art class. Every stroke is a new stroke to me. And I'm just doing my best to learn everything I can. Um, You know, it makes me envious of everybody who got to go to art school. But now I'm in my own art school. Yeah. And I think um, you've brought up a good point where while art, yes, it's about the product. It's so much about the process itself. And I think, you know, street art itself, like you said, it's this response to events and moments and you get to respond and have that process. And it's possible that it might disappear. Yeah. And what's great about doing it now is the immediacy also of social media. I mean, I didn't participate in any social media until I started doing this Black Palms thing. And I've been very happy to um, make a connection with a lot of really nice people. And having that response is great. Street art is an anonymous world for the most part. 
until you become very big and famous and get your gallery shows, etc. But um, for a lot of us, you know, we slink out in the night and put up our stuff and see what happens, you know. You know, being on Instagram has been great um, and the support has just been fantastic. This reminded me of the interactions that I've had with people that read my writing. I love when people comment about my work. I love hearing that conversation and then finding out about them because everything, like kind of what you said, is like a projection of each other, right? And sometimes I think people have this idea of celebrity if like you've published something or painted something or saying something or whatever. But I feel like, you know, I personally really love hearing from others and I think it keeps the conversation going and kind of builds that story. Yeah. And, you know, people say they're surprised when I respond and, you know, because I guess they felt like some artist is not going to respond. But I'm so new at this social media thing. Maybe I'm doing it wrong, but I don't know. You know, if you reach out to me, I'll reach out to you. And, uh, you know, it's all about the connection. So um, that's the beauty of it. This part of our conversation actually reminded me about an experience I had when I reached out to an artist. There's this novel I read called A Place for Us, which is really, really great. And But I listened to it on audiobook through the LA Public Library. And I loved the voiceover artist. And I dabbled in voiceover work years ago. But, you know, I think it's kind of one of those things where you don't, unless it's like, you know, William Attenborough or like whoever, you don't really know who the voice is for a lot of these things. So I somehow hunted the person down and I found their email address and I emailed her and I said, I loved, like, you were so great. And I did this because I know that artists like to hear that from other people, especially those that are often forgotten. And she was so grateful for the compliment, obviously, but also that I reached out to her. And I think it's very common for artists to be very grateful for any, like, response to their work. So Yeah, and I think, you know, so many artists work in anonymity. So for anybody to reach out and, you know, do the work that it takes to reach out to someone like that is always appreciated. I really like this conversation about artists connecting with their audience. I feel like the hierarchy between creators and consumers can be really difficult to navigate in a culture of capitalism when all an artist wants to do is stir the imagination of their patrons. Of course, we all need to have boundaries when it comes to giving our energy to others, but it can be difficult to be an anonymous artist while also connecting. Speaking of anonymous, I couldn't end our conversation without asking, why the name Black Palms? I was looking for a name that was a little bit, I don't want to say generic, but not necessarily tied to specific iconography. In my mind, Black Palms can mean a couple things, alluding to tropic noir imagery of palm trees in the night in a black silhouette. I think also that I feel like there's a bit of a sinister feeling to it, um, if you take it in another context. And the other thing is nobody has black palms, you know, and like no matter what race you are, there's no such thing as black palms. It took me a second to grasp what he said at the end there, but wow, it kind of blew my mind. I'm not quite sure why, but even thinking about that makes me emotional. I always find that words have so much power and black palms by virtue of his street artist name proved that. Art has a way of giving multiple meanings for us to interpret and create. And I'm also so grateful for this conversation that I had with Black Palms because we talked about so many different types of art. We talked about production. We talked about street art. We talked about dancing as an art. 
And really, so much of everything we do is an art, but we can so often reduce it to a task or just something we have to do. And this really makes me wonder how we would see the world if we viewed more of these tasks as pieces of art. Just something to think about for the future. As always, I'd love to thank my creative talent that helped me on this episode. So thank you to Tiffany Wong for your help with the Migrations cover art. And thank you to Shin Kawasaki for the Migrations song, Find Another Way. Music was also provided via CC Mixture by Airtone with the song Resonance. And of course, I'd love to thank Quincy Sewersmith for editing this episode. I'd like to give a shout out to my $20 a month and above Patreon patrons. So thank you to my brother Shaolin, Dahlia Gehan, and Gino Manola for your generous support. Thank you to all of my Patreon patrons. Remember, you could support this podcast by going to www.patreon.com slash migrations. Thank you again. This is Nisha Modi, and until next time.